He is risen. Amen. I thank you guys for being here. If you're our guest here today, I want to welcome you. My name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor here at Olive Branch. And if you've been invited to check out Olive Branch, we're just excited here. Would you guys welcome our guests, please? Just, just thank them for being here. You guys. The reason we get excited is because we just love um, adding people to the family and getting to know people who we don't otherwise know and, and just growing as a community. Today, we're going to go through a biopic, uh, a biopic, not a picture like a film, but just kind of a biography, a short one of an individual that actually is kind of an interesting character in the scriptures. He was there at the beginning. He was there at the humanity's sinful fall. He is there at the cross. He's, he's here now. He'll be there at the end. And this being that we're going to be talking about isn't God, and it's not Jesus, we're going to be looking at uh, Satan today. And that seems like a weird thought. You're like, Greg, Greg, hold on a second. Because when I say that name, Satan or devil, man, weird cultural thoughts go floating through everybody's head from everything from a little, a little, you know, devil on your, on your shoulder, talking to you on one side and an angel on the other, or, or you wind up going like covering your kid's ears. Cause you're like, this can get really scary and dark. And, and I just, I just want to pull back for a minute and just say, it's not going to be in that way. But I also want to mention that, you know, all of these ideas of the devil in a red suit with little pointy horns and so all of this is just weirdness that our culture has created. It is, most of the things that people think about the devil actually have nothing to do with the reality of who he is. And what we're going to do today is we're just going to kind of go through his story. We're going to look at who he is because I really want to kind of land into a conversation about this over the next coming weeks because I really think it's important to, to take into mind that an unknown enemy is the worst kind to have in your midst. It's one thing to know there's an enemy on the front. It's another thing to realize there are oftentimes enemies amongst you that you may not know, and they're far more dangerous. And so we're just going to kind of take an account of that, and yeah, we're going to begin today. And I want to start with the conversation in an interesting location by a man named C.S. Lewis. Anybody heard of C.S. Lewis? Wrote Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. That's okay. Some of you are like, well, he was an atheist um, who became a, a, a Christian while a professor at Oxford and, and a professor at Cambridge. And it was interesting as he began to write, his hardest work he ever wrote, he said, was this small book called The Screwtape Letters. And it's an odd little book where a, a, like a junior devil is asking help from his uncle, who is a um, if devils had uncles, but, you know, asking help from his uncle to say, hey, man, how can you, uh, how can you help me? Because I, I can't seem to help this out. And so what I want to do is I want to kind of remind us of a thought that he has in the introduction of his book. It says this, it says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive, unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. And so I want to address that quickly because one of the things I don't want to do today is make you guys get all super interested in it and be like, oh yeah, you know, did you know there are, there are, there's a, a devil of fevers and there's a demon of, of, of just anger and there, there's a demon of diabetes and there's, a, you know, all these different things to the point where we run around going, the devil made me do it. Or we get to a Saturday night live skit and I become the church lady going, Satan, every time we come up with a problem. That's one problem. On the other side, you wind up with this idea, this is ridiculous. This is all mythology. I just wasted my Easter hanging out at church, listening to myth, because we all know these are just psychological problems. It has nothing to do with the devil. Well, hold on, time out for a minute. 
What's very interesting is that even in the psychological world, even in a world that uh, understands psychology and all this stuff, there are still these, this strange reality of these kind of beings. Every major world religion and every minor world religion that we know of all contains the concepts of devils and demons in some way, except for one. And that one that doesn't believe, the only one on the earth is Western secular atheism. That's it. Now, that's a pretty small percentage to be the ones arguing, yet we fall, as Americans, far more into that small percentage of thinking, this is ridiculous, and yet the rest of the world would tell you, this isn't ridiculous. This is our reality we deal with every day. And this is not just modern times. This is all the way through history. And so we have to reckon this for a minute, but we need to look at this. We need to examine this. And yeah, we're going, we're starting on Easter. And you guys are like, why? You know, there's children in the building. What are we doing? And I, I, I want to tell you because, um, well, we'll see. I want to show you. Just, just hang on. If you've got that question, hold on to it. And, and I think it'll reveal itself as we start moving through the conversation. Instead, I want to take you like in a flashback sequence. We're going we're gonna to zip back. Like any good uh, biopic is going to take you back in history. I want to take you back to a time before there was an earth and before there was a heavens when there was only God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, triune in their love and joy, are, are, are God in existence, enjoying whatever that timeless existence is and desires to create. And if you're a Bible student at all, if you've ever tried to read the Bible, you got to this point because on the first very line of all the Bible, it says, and God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And right there is the implication that the realm of the heavens were, and the angelic hosts were made, was, was created. That's about the only time we see that kind of a reference. Everything else is about how our universe and how our earth was made. And so suddenly as you get into this conversation right here, the heavens are made. We know that in the Psalms, it says the angels sang as the foundations of the earth were being laid. And, and they were a part of the creation in the sense of the joy and the victory of God. And what's interesting is the devil and Satan is not God's equal. Now, now, there's a cultural thought most people have. Like there's good God named Jesus and there's bad God named devil. And you just got to pick which one you want to go with. And that's not the case at all. That's far closer to Zoroastrianism, a Persian religion, than it has anything to do with Christianity. Second, it's also closer to the yin-yang concept of Eastern religions and, again, has nothing to do with the Christian thought. In fact, the devil has a beginning. His beginning was when, the created, when the God created the angelic hosts. He was a good angel. He was an angel who worshipped God. He was on God's side. In fact, all of the demons were, are just angels who loved God, worshipped God, celebrated God until something shifted. Something adjusted in the narrative and speculative that maybe it was the creation of humanity or it was the decision to create humanity that suddenly something twisted in the heart of this particular angelic being. It's hinted at in a place called the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is a prophet in roughly the, the, the 500s BC. And as, I, as Isaiah is preaching and teaching, and we actually do know that Isaiah existed. We just found his, uh, his signet, his, the impress of his signet ring only a couple months ago in a burial, an archaeological dig. His, and so very fascinating that we know this, car this man existed. And in his writings, he lays out in Isaiah chapter 14, if you want to go there, you can grab a Bible and look, or you want to write that down later and look it up. It reads this way. He's speaking to the, 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 the Babylonian king. 
And what's interesting about it is the scholars point out this doesn't fit real well with a Babylonian king. This fits better in a, in a, in a sense of pairing him up with what happened in heaven. Because it starts this way, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Now, What's interesting about the text, again, is that some of it hints to an earthly king. Others of it seems to hint at something or someone beyond. Who, who can ascend into the presence of God, into the heavens, above the angels, and into these locations, except, except an angelic being? And so scholars have pointed and said, what you're looking at here is actually the fall of this angel. In fact, what's interesting, that term, O day star, son of dawn, when translated into the Latin, you get the word that you all know as Lucifer. And so classically, this is considered the fall of Satan. And what brought his fall was this term right here. You're going to make yourself like the most high. See, what happened is he looked at what God was doing. He examined the situation and he said, I don't like this God. I don't like what you're doing. I want to do it. I want to be God. You know what? If I was God... I would do this. And he planted a flag saying, this is the way I want to do it. This is the way I'm going to do it. Boom, my flag. And, the, and some of the angels rallied behind him. In the midst of this war or whatever happened in heaven, they're cast out. They're removed. They're sealed away, never to be able to, to enter into the presence of God and blessing. They're not, they, are, they are sealed away to do evil. And now there's no redemption for these guys. So they land down here on the earth. They're looking around going, like, what are we going to do now? We got an idea. And Satan goes, we're going to start recruiting. What are we going to recruit? These things called humans. See, we were made by God in his image for his purpose to cultivate and create this world as God would have us. Not to destroy it, not to mar it up, not to hurt one another. We were originally made to be a community of love and care and creation of a great civilization. And he sees this because we were made to be like God. He goes, no, 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 we're going we're to mess with this. And so suddenly we pick up in, in a very interesting text. If you've ever read the Bible, you've probably gotten to chapter 3 of Genesis. And you began to go, this really is a book of fairy tales. This is weird. Because let's face it, it seems strange because snakes don't talk last time I checked, right? Anybody seen us talking? Unless you've watched Harry Potter or something, which is a totally different subject. But you guys don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, so the... Uh, this, this verse, is, it starts off in chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Wait, the, a serpent's talking? This is weird. <clears throat> now I actually believe this occurred. I don't think this is just a mythology. As the Bible reflects back in on itself, it's not so much that animals talked at the time. It's that the Bible clearly states that this is Satan who's empowered this serpent. He's come to, to basically recruit human, humanity into the situation. And so the journey of, of Satan from the rebellion into the earth is now in this recruiting phase. He shows up as the serpent slithering around on this tree. And as he comes up to the woman and the man who's standing by her, he asks them, so you can't eat anything in the garden, huh? And, and she's like, this is ridiculous. We can eat of any tree 
we can eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And this is what God had provided, given them everything that they needed, everything to cultivate and make the world beautiful and right and strong, all the food that they needed, everything was given in this garden paradise. And the servant just blatantly contradicts, says, you can't have any of this stuff. She's like, no, 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 we just can't touch this tree. And he goes, no, 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 that's not the case. You're not going to die. This is next line. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, here's the problem, Eve. It's not so much that God's keeping you from these things. You can't trust him. He's really holding back from you this one thing the knowledge of good and evil. See, he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be wise. Where have we heard this before, to be like God? Isn't this the very danger that Satan entered into where he was going to be like the Most High? This is his sudden recruitment. This is how you identify what's going on here. He's kind of ushering people in to say, listen, listen. God doesn't really care about you as much as you think. He's not really providing for you everything that you need. What you need to do is you need to provide for yourself. Eat of this fruit and watch what happens. You'll be like God. You'll know good. You'll know evil. And you can plant your flag with me and say, I'm going to do it my way. And that's exactly what we read happens in verse 6. Humanity takes it their way. It says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, she's not thinking about what God says. She's only looking at it from her own perspective. She took and of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Yeah, the dude was standing there silent the whole time. You go right ahead, babe. We'll see how history paints this one. It paints it as he's at fault is what it does. But fascinatingly, humanity suddenly takes up this stance and we say, thump, we lay the ground of the rebellion and we say, yes, we're going to do it our way. And it's right there that suddenly it seems that something happened. It seems like the devil was correct and yet God was wrong. They didn't die and yet they did. Taking up that rebellion, they died in a manner towards God that was spiritual. In fact, the Apostle Paul reflecting back on this story, I believe, references the idea in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now that word trespasses is interesting for a second. Think about it this way. When, you, when you're going to trespass, there's a line you should not cross, and there's a sign that says, no trespassing. And how many of you men have thought, oh, yeah? <laughs> right? Because we're, we're, we're like that. Humanity, we're like that. You tell a kid, don't do that. And we go, don't touch that desk. Don't touch your sister one more time. You know, that's, that's how we are from, from birth. We're rebellious. That's what the word means, trespass, rebellion. And we cross it. In this rebellious stance, we step across and he says, you are dead in your rebellion. You are dead in your trespasses and sins and what you once walked. Following, this is an interesting term, the course of this world. The word course means a racetrack of some kind. In some cases, the ancient world was a circular racetrack. Maybe you've watched Ben-Hur and you've seen that famous um, scene of the race. That's a course. Um, There was the courses of long distance running that we know today. You think of it in these terms. What you have is a race that has to be run. You have to keep on that course course, round and round. It's laid out for you. The same old, same old. Isn't this us? How many years more do we have to make New Year's resolutions and only two and a half months in, we forgot what we said and we have failed every single one of them. 
How many times after you've had a rage attack or you have done something that you feel ashamed about, you've lied about something, you hit it because you were whatever, that you've swore to yourself, I will never do that again, only to wind up doing it several more times throughout that month. We're running a course. We're following a very clean line over and over. Psychology works off of these things. They see the patterns of humanity and they see that there's these courses that we work and we run. And this course is the course of the world and it's following somebody who's already laid it out for us. And that is this one called the prince of the power of the air. That's a name given to Satan. He has laid out this course of rebellion that runs down this distant journey. And we as humanity are like holding the flag. We'll do it our way. And we're chasing right after him. Man, if I was God, I would. And off we go, chasing down the same course, the same direction after the spirit that's at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all live. There's nobody left out in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This very act of carrying this banner and and acting out to do it the way I'm going to do it is what has brought so much havoc upon the earth. Since we carried that banner, we have seen wars and human sacrifice. We've seen slavery. We have seen the, the, the death of the poor, the abuse of children. All of these evils have increased and grown and we've decreased. And they come back and all of this stuff starts happening because we go, we're going to do it our way. Boom. We're going to talk about marriage our way. Boom. We're going to talk about things in family and in life and in work and in greed and our way. Boom. And we're encouraged for this. So the enemy's not done. He hates our guts. He's not happy we're on his team. He's just happy we're separated from God. And so now what he does is he likes to watch us destroy each other. So he starts with lies. Because we're separated from God who would tell us the truth and would separate us from the one who would never lie to us, he tells us all kinds of lies, man. He'll tell you things like, you know, you're only valuable by how you look. You ever bought that one? Junior hires in the room? Ex-junior hires in the room? <laughs> You know, you're only as valuable as what your skills enable you to do or your talents. You're only as valuable as your paycheck. You know what? You are only as valuable as you are desired by people, as as much power as you contain. You are only as valued as you are loved. And nobody loves you. Because how could they love somebody like you? That moves from lies into threats. But in the middle of there is something called temptation, man. God loves, or not God, the, the devil loves to use temptation God warns us about this constantly and saying, listen, there's temptation that's going to come your way. Temptation is just to offer you the very thing that you want. See, none of us are threatened by a temptation that we know is wrong. We think this is ridiculous, but it's when that temptation seems true. It's when that temptation seems lovely. It's when that temptation seems good that suddenly we're willing to lie. We're willing to cheat. We're willing to hate. Well, it keeps me safe because all these temptations are there to make you sin, to make you do evil, to separate you from other human beings and keep you separated from God. So finally, he's like, you know what? The other thing I'm going to do, I'm going to threaten you. I'm going to threaten you by accusing you because I know one thing about everybody on the planet. We're all guilty of something and ashamed of something. Isn't that true? I don't know a person who doesn't have skeletons in their closet. You know why we have skeletons in our closet? Because we're ashamed to bring them out. 
You're afraid to open the door. The reason we keep them there is the shame and the fear. The reason we keep them there is because if somebody found out, how could they love me? Because that's what happens when you feel guilty and when you feel ashamed, there is fear involved. I'm going to show this off. I'm going to reveal this to everybody. And that fear leads us to doing things to say, I don't want people to know who I am. I'm going to do it my way. Boom. And it's led to this horrific situation throughout history because he's just pushing us along. And the sad thing is that this rebellion that Satan has begun seems to have found its way is in every human heart. And it seems it's one. But God did fight back. It's not the end of the story. There's a battle going on between Satan and his rebellion and God who the rebellion is against. And God says, you know what? No, I'm not going to leave it this way. In fact, from day one, when the rebellion began, he showed up and he began to speak to both, to not only um, Adam and Eve, but also the serpent. And he gave the serpent a promise. He said, you know what? I'm going to fight you. And in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, he says, I'm going to put enmity. There's going to be war between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And that offspring is a singular. There's this one offspring of the woman that's coming and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's going to be this battle in which will ensue that he will crush you and you will strike him in a mortal blow. And this image floats in the background of the entirety of the Bible as it's floating along, as the battle plan of God begins to work out. He calls this man named Abraham. He calls him out. But what does he find in Abraham? Just rebellion. And then a willingness to follow and back and forth. And from his people, you get Israel. And Israel is supposed to be this people of God. And ultimately, what do we discover from these people of God? Rebellion. They're still flying the flag. While they're struggling not to, they're still flying the flag. And if you're looking through the Bible, here's one thing. You're not going to find a perfect hero over and over and over again. What you're going to find is a messed up group of human beings who constantly are in rebellion, and yet God uses them anyway until you hit one individual who shines like a beacon of difference, and that's Jesus. Because what's interesting about Jesus is that he never sins never joins the rebellion. He's a different kind of human. And it's because God himself had set this up to where he says, look for me, look for me. I'm coming in this, in this people, in this lineage, under this king. And then he appeared as Jesus and he put himself, God came in a human body. And we celebrate that at Christmas. So we don't have to deal with that when we've, we've all been at Christmas. And so now we, we come to this reality that he has lived for 30 years being raised by humans, being cared for by humans, him being a human. He learns and honors work. He's a carpenter. He does all this stuff. And then one day he goes, it's time for my ministry. He gets up, he's baptized, comes out, the Holy Spirit comes upon him, all this amazing fireworks. You're expecting like, let's get an army. Let's attack the bad guys. Let's go do this. Instead, he goes off into a desert in one of the strangest scenes in all the gospel. Come on, Christians, you got to admit, this is weird. Like Jesus all armed and ready to go. He's like, off he goes into the desert, not to eat anything for 40 days and be tempted by the devil. And you're like, what is going on? And then the temptations, lame, 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 right? I mean, turn the stone into bread. What kind of temptation is that? Throw yourself off a temple. (laughs) But they're powerful, actually. Stop and think about it for a minute. He meets Satan in the desert. He's not, he's not eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. And Satan comes up to him and says, oh, so you think you're the son of man, do you? <laughs> well, why don't you go ahead and turn these stones into bread? I mean, I don't see God providing anything else for you here. Why don't you go ahead and provide for yourself? Wait, haven't we heard this before? Isn't this a temptation he threw at Eve? 
Did God not say you can't eat of everything, of all these fruit trees in the garden? Oh, no, he's trying to hold something back from you. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. I listen to the words of God. I don't need bread to survive. The opposite of what Eve said and Adam said, who said, we're not going to listen to God. We're going to do our thing, plant our flag of selfishness and pride. I'm going to live my life my way. So Satan backs up and says, okay, fine, fine, fine. Let's try this one. Hey, is it, oh, you know, why don't you come with me? Goes up on top of the temple. Why don't you throw yourself off? Because doesn't your precious little, your precious little scriptures say that God won't let you even stub a toe? I mean, surely you're not going to die. Oh, we've heard that one too. And Jesus says, you're not going to test the Lord your God. Oh, okay, okay. Well, mister, so you think you're the son of God, huh? Let me show you something. Takes up on a mountain. He says, see all this? All of this is mine. Shows him the nations of the world. Shows him his controller. You, you want, I'll give all this to you if you'll just bow down and worship me. See, I'll make you like God. Wait, we've heard that one too. He says, no, no, no. You don't worship anybody but the Lord your God. Now get out of here. And Jesus right there shows there's no temptation that is going to capture him. It's not going to be a lust of the eye, lust of the flesh, or the boastful pride of life. None of that's going to capture his heart. And Jesus suddenly stands up as a being who is beachhead. He's broken in. And now he's not been able to be attacked. He's won the first battle. Sin backs up, tries to scare him. Can't do that. Can't accuse him. He can't get him to sin. Can't lie to him. He knows the truth. Next thing you know, he goes, fine, I got it. We need to kill him. And so we find by the time in Luke 22, after Jesus has cast out demons, done all this stuff, this, it says Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the 12. And he went away and conferred with the chief priest officers how he might betray them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. And so he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of a crowd. And Satan steps into this man and this man decides, you know what, I'm going to do it my way. I'm tired of following Jesus. Betrays him in a garden. He's arrested. Jesus taken through two farces of a trial. Stood before a Roman governor. And the Roman governor sits there and goes, well, he's innocent. But if you guys really want to kill him, okay. I guess I get scared about this. I want you guys to get mad at me. And so they send Jesus to be flogged. They have him then beat. And then he's taken by his own, it takes his own cross all the way out to Golgotha where he's crucified. Hangs on that cross for six hours. Darkness falls, and I bet you of anything that the enemy, Satan and his hordes, stood there cheering and shouting, Do you see that? That's your God. God came in the flesh, and humanity's rejected you. You're done. The rebellion is won. You're over. And it looks like, indeed, evil won. But that's why we're talking about it on Easter. Because Jesus didn't stay dead Jesus rose from the dead. He turned and he conquered the enemy in one blow where he reversed death. He took on sin and the enemy suddenly was sitting there going, what just happened here? The very thing that we intended for evil, he intended for good. The very moment in which it seemed defeat was imminent, there was victory for God. And it's when we see this that you get the drama of the scriptures when you eliminate the enemy from a World War II movie and you're like, yay, the United States won. It doesn't make any sense. Over what? And when we shout, he's risen. And we say, it's so glorious. So what? Unless you see the victory that he's had over ultimate evil, over an evil that is 
just dogged us for centuries and centuries. See, Jesus rose from the dead. He revealed himself, not just to his disciples, but over 500 different people saw him and he taught them and he trained them after he had already died. And then he turns to them before he ascends into heaven. And these are his words. He says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Oh, do you remember? Satan says, you want all this? You can have it if you bow down. And Jesus says, nope, it's already mine. You've lost. There's no authority that belongs to the enemy anymore if you're walking in the kingdom of God. If you've laid down arms and dropped your, your rebellion, if we stop planting the flag, I'll do it my way, and we start going, well, that didn't work. We find out that there on the cross, Jesus bore our rebellion on himself. If we found out there on the cross that he overcame the consequences of that rebellion. And we find out that he also disarmed the very one who torments us. In the book of Colossians, it says that at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And this is true. If you follow Jesus, the devil can't do a whole heck of a lot to you. What if he tempts you and you sin? And you sin? You're forgiven. Huh. Well, what if I feel real guilty and ashamed about my past? He's already borne that on the cross and taken it away from you. What if he lies to me? You have the truth given to you and you have the spirit of truth dwelling in you. Okay, well, what if he kills me? <sighs> Whoops. You get eternal life where there's love and truth and justice, no sin, no mourning, no pain, no shame, and it's a resurrected life and a resurrected earth for the rest of eternity. That don't sound too bad. Last thing he wants to do is kill us, give us everything we wanted. He's disarmed. He has nothing to do. And so it's very interesting that suddenly we see that he's not only lost his authority, he's lost his armament, and therefore he sees his end. Jesus in the Revelation proclaims to John, who writes it down, that the devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. They'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now let me tell you, that's called hell. Did you know hell was never invented for humanity? Jesus said, hell was made for the devil and his angels. You see, that course we're running on has a finish line. And the one it's following has an ending point in hell. God never intended a human being to go there. He did not create us for the destiny of hell. When we jumped on that course and we ran, it's the inevitable conclusion of running on the journey of I'm going to do it my way. We're following after the very rebel leader and his end isn't very pretty. So why talk about this on Easter? Not only to talk about the triumph of Jesus, but to remind us of one thing. If Jesus can overcome Satan, he can overcome the evil of our day as well. If he can overcome the ultimate evil, he can overcome the problems of our day. He can overcome the hashtag me too issues, the nuclear proliferation. He can overcome the, the horrific issues of children walking into their schools to shoot their, their, their own classmates. Is this not an evil world we're, prop, we're in a situation with? And I get it. We go like, well, time out, Greg. I really, I don't like the idea that you're equating me with Satan. I mean, he's really evil. Agreed. You're not all as evil as Satan. At least I hope not. No. But here's the problem. I was, a, in a sense, take the analogy. I once stood guard with the gun and the Nazi flag flying over my head. And just because I was part of that, part of that evil group, it makes no difference if I point and say, well, Hitler's worse than I am. 
If we stand under the flag of rebellion, if we stand under the flag, I'm going to do it my way. If I was God, I would. If I'm going to stand under the flag, if it's my life, I make the rules. It's my life, I get to own it. You're standing under the flag of the rebellion no matter whose team you think you're on. And the danger is that we find ourselves in a situation where one day the war is over and there's going to be a war tribunal and no one escapes the war tribunal when they're on the wrong side. But here's the thing. Jesus won. The kingdom of God has been victorious. The shame and the guilt is gone. You see, people, you will hear this lie out there, and it's from the enemy. The churches are here to make you feel guilty and ashamed of yourself. You bad, dirty sinners. No, actually, you know what we're here for? To tell you to release your guilt and your shame because Jesus Christ has taken it for you on the cross. The church isn't here to wag its finger at you. The church is here to proclaim, hey, we're all messed up. Jesus bore it. You don't have to fight anymore. If you don't know what you're here for, you don't know what your value is, you don't understand what God's doing, you find it when you meet God through Jesus Christ because he made you, he sustains you, and he gave you a value that's infinite. And the lies don't work anymore. You see, the problem of defeating the evil of our day is not a problem of defeating great issues. It's not that people are insane, and it's not that people need educations. It's not that people need these special situations of religious mumbo-jumbo. No, my friends, what we need is Jesus Christ, because when you educate the evil person, they become an educated evil person. Stalin and Mao are educated evil people. They murdered millions of people. There's nothing deranged about these people that do these evils. They don't get off on insanity, please. And there are plenty of insane people that are kind-hearted and nice. They just have some mental illnesses. And if it is true, it's just about being crazy. You're one mental illness away from being an insane, murdering maniac. And you have no control over your own mental states when they go that way. Oh, it's just about religion. No, no, guess what? Religion, there's a lot of evil people hide in religions. And a lot of evil done in the perpetuation of religion. No, there's only one answer to the problem of the situation of the evil of our day, and that is that the evil within your heart has to be defeated. And Jesus Christ's work on the cross defeats the evil in our heart because what he does is he takes all of that evil and places it upon himself. In the book of Colossians, before it says it disarmed these people, he says, and you who are dead in your rebellion and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of our rebellion. He cancels the debt that stood against us at that war tribunal with all its legal demands. And this he sets aside, nailing it to the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is willing to bear your sin, to give you access to God so you can know what he has made you to be and to do. And today, all you have to do is receive God's pardon. The pardon is open. The pardon is available. And you need to receive it. You don't work to earn it. There's no bunch of hoops you got to jump through. We need to come with the flag flying high and lay it down. He'll receive you and clean you from there. By laying it down, declaring him Lord, saying, I'm done with the fight. Besides, how well has it gone for you? Running your own life. How many more people do we need to hurt? How much more vengeance do we need to seek? How much more bitterness do we need to carry? pardons available and he's here to receive you
to end your guilt, to end your shame, to end the fear. Would you bow your heads with me? I want to give you this opportunity right now. Perhaps you find that you have indeed been flying the flag of doing it your way. And it doesn't matter your age or how long you've been doing it. God is still willing to set you free, to forgive you and pardon you. He bore your sins on the cross if you are willing to receive him. And I ask that you would just consider today that this is your chance to lay that flag down. Be forgiven of your sins and not finish the course that rebellion leads to. God wants no one to go to hell. That's why he was willing to die for you. He loves you that much. Maybe today it's time to receive that love. If that's you and this is hitting you and it's resonating with you and you know you need to make a change. You know you need to step out of leading and ruling your own life and step into following Christ, I want to ask that you do me a favor and let me know that you're going to make that move receiving him. Just by putting your hand up, you're saying, that's me today. Man, I need that. I need to be forgiven. God, just take this prayer and pray it with me. Just say, God in heaven, I've been on the rebellion path. I ask that you'd forgive me. I trust Jesus that you're taking my rebellion on yourself and that you've forgiven me now. Set me free from my fears, my guilt, and my shame. Would you come into my life and lead me now? Lead me towards love and justice and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.